If you're watching this video or listening to the podcast, you probably missed the Live at Five service uh, when I first preached this sermon, and we had uh, a couple of volunteers read the scriptures. Um, since you're not going to hear them read the scriptures, I will go ahead and read it now so we can have the whole story in context. So I am reading Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the king of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should each be educated three years, at the end of which they were enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed for your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance be observed in your presence." and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the days their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine which they were to drink, and kept giving them vegetables." As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were all in his realm. And Daniel 
continued until the first year of Cyrus the King. The upcoming presidential election in the United States will be followed by more people than the Super Bowl and World Cup combined. Not the actual speeches and debates and ceremonies, like the World Cup's going to blow them out of the water, same with the Super Bowl. But I'm talking about the outcomes. Like, I don't know who the leaders of Luxembourg or Fiji are in this point in time. And I, it's, I don't not know that information because those people aren't important or because those places aren't important. Now, the reason I don't know about Luxembourg and Fiji and their political system right now is because they don't have the power to make policy that impacts the course of world history. Like it or not, the world watches what happens in the U.S. because it is a superpower. That is, on the surface, it appears that what the United States does will affect almost everyone else in the world. What we do with trade, climate change, race relations, foreign policy, and the pandemic, it all has an impact on how other countries relate respond, and adjust. That's pretty much what it means to be a superpower. And I bring this up because it is a contemporary example of the lives that we are now living. It is in the air that we breathe and easy for us to understand. And I want to make the point that the setting of the book of Daniel was very similar. Babylon was a superpower in the ancient world. When King Nebuchadnezzar took the throne of Babylon around 605 BC, he was inheriting a kingdom that was already an unstoppable force in the ancient Near East. But Nebuchadnezzar was more than a conqueror. He was a builder. The capital city of Babylon became a center for art, architecture, and wealth. Babylon's hanging gardens were stunning, full of grandeur and beauty. They're written about in poetry uh, for centuries and centuries after they were long gone. And as we often uh, see, as, as is often the case, whoever is on top in, of the world at any given time, whoever the global superpower is, they claim that their economy and culture and military might, their ideology, their religion, or their philosophy is superior to everyone else's. Babylon was a legitimate superpower. And as we enter into the story world of Daniel chapter 1, I want to point out two realities. First, Daniel and his friends were exiles. They were truly captives. They were truly displaced and disoriented and had their lives uprooted completely against their will. They're taken from Jerusalem and marched to Babylon, a foreign land, a different culture with a different language, completely overwhelming and disorienting. But second, Daniel is a book written on purpose to encourage not only the Israelites who are in captivity in Babylon, but also the oppressed people under, uh, sorry, the oppressed people of God under oppressive powers like Greece and Rome and all future oppressors. The book of Daniel wants to say to all of God's people, including you and me, that no matter how much of a superpower an oppressor seems to be, God is above them all. No matter how dominant a culture or a political movement or military is, all human institutions are temporary in the scheme of God's power and his plans and his justice. So just as Babylon conquered the Assyrians, so Babylon would fall to the Persians, 
and the Persians to the Greeks, and the Greeks to the Romans, and so on and so forth. The British Empire once seemed invincible, but it has since crumbled. The Soviet Union once seemed like a global superpower, but it has since been humbled. China seems to be rising in the East, and as we read Daniel from a 21st century uh, American perspective, we would do well to learn wisdom and humility. America won't always be a superpower, but God's kingdom will be. And that's why it's important to realize that as followers of Jesus, first and foremost, there are many ways in which we are actually in exile in America. How will we choose to navigate this world that we're given um, as followers of Jesus? Would you pray with me? Lord, as we enter into this text of Daniel 1, this amazing story of your providence, your sovereignty, and the faithfulness um, of you to Daniel and his friends and their faithfulness to you, I pray, God, that you would fill us with awe and wonder for who you are and what you can do in any circumstance. And that by the power of your Spirit, you would release creativity for us to see how we can thrive even in the midst of exile ourselves. Amen. All right. So in the book of Daniel, it opens with this short history uh, of how Israel came to be in Babylonian captivity. And on the surface, it appears that this rising superpower from the east, Babylon, took control of Israel and to show their dominance, you know, carried away the holy artifacts from the temple, these consecrated vessels, all sorts of precious metals, and they placed them in their temple of their own gods, particularly the god of Marduk, right? This transfer of holy objects was a way of saying, not only are we superior to you in military might, but our gods are more powerful than your gods and goddesses, or whatever it is you worship. To add tension to the story, the author calls Babylon by the name Shinar. And Shinar is mentioned in Genesis 11. You should look it up sometime. It's the location of the Tower of Babel story. That place, Shinar, the Tower of Babel, where that was built, is a place known all throughout the prophets as well uh, as a place particularly opposed to the will and way of God. Now, by Daniel's day in the 6th century BC, Shinar had been known as Babylon for centuries, okay? It wasn't even called Shinar uh, anymore. But by making us, the reader, think of Genesis 11, we are to understand that this story is taking place in a land uniquely opposed to God. So Nebuchadnezzar has won this military victory over Israel. But he knew that with his expanding empire, he had to find ways to raise up new leaders while also keeping his subjects, uh, his other nations who were subject to him, how to keep them loyal to him. And so he tells his head eunuch, Ashpenaz, to gather up some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and nobles, youths in who there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. I don't know many teenagers like that, but he found some. <laughs> what, what is he doing? If Nebuchadnezzar really needed gifted leaders, why not just take some of Israel's adults who were the, the finest in the land, who they had experience and were battle-tested? Why take youths? Two main reasons. First, Nebuchadnezzar wanted leverage. 
If you have some of the kids of the royal family and some of the kids from influential nobles, you better think twice, right? Israel had better think twice before rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar because he could have said, I I've actually got your kids here in my house. And if you want them to be okay, you'll do what I say. So it's a bit of a hostage situation. Second, he wanted people he could mold into his service. Older Israelites would be too set in their religion, too loyal to their nation. There would always be this underlying risk of assassination or attempted uh, sabotage. But a young person is theoretically moldable. Give them a few years and they could learn Aramaic and the culture as well as their native language and customs. Give them a few more years and they could turn out to be more Babylonian than Jewish. They had to be smart to be of actual value to the king. They had to be good-looking to be presentable in the king's court when he entertained foreign leaders and dignitaries. And these cadets, I guess we'll call them, they would undergo a rigorous three-year training regimen, likely with other exiles from other nations. And in that training process, they would learn to be fluent in Aramaic language, both reading and writing. They would learn Babylonian history and culture, mathematics, philosophy, literature, and most uniquely, the art of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were an ancient tribe within Babylon, and they were famous for being magi, wise men. They would learn to decipher dreams and visions, read the stars and weather patterns, and this is gross, but they would learn to read the layout of animal entrails to determine the future or to determine wisdom in the present moment. It was a distinctly offensive education for Torah-observant Jews like Daniel and his friends. They would be learning skills, some of which were strictly prohibited by the law of God in Scripture. And finally, these four exiles from Israel were stripped of their Hebrew names and given Babylonian names. So Daniel becomes known as Belteshazzar, and Hananiah becomes Shadrach, and Mishael becomes known as Meshach, and Azariah becomes Abednego, or Abednego. Stripped of family names, forced to speak Aramaic, educated in the mystic arts, taken from home and family, they are on the road to being assimilated into the Babylonian way. In fact, by the end of the chapter, we learn that Daniel never even makes it back to Israel. He serves in the court of many Babylonian kings, and then Cyrus, the Persian king, after that. Now, how is any of this supposed to be encouraging to Israel and to future exiles? And what, if anything, are you and I supposed to learn from this text? I sort of wanted to stack it this way so that you and I would experience the heaviness of Daniel's exile. It was real. It forever changed their lives. But I now want to point out how he came to flourish even in exile. And I want to draw upon his experience to suggest some ways that we can flourish as well. And there's no sugarcoating this. There's no doubt that the situation was bad. But there is a reality at work that gives reason to hope. So let's go back to verse 2, uh, and just in case we skipped over it, and let me quote it here. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Okay, it's very tempting to think that history is just arbitrary, or to think that the superpowers of the world wield all of the influence, and that the nations and leaders chart the course of history. 
But here we see that it was the Lord who set all of this into motion. And as we see throughout this story, there are really two agents at work. These agents are not equal, but they both have parts to play. Agent 1, capital A agent, is God. This is all happening under God's watch and, strangely, under God's authority. Agent 2, lowercase a, is every single human being. We are the image bearers of God, the image bearers of Agent A. And in this story, Agent 2, little case a, is Daniel and his three friends. Now let's see some other strategies for flourishing in a hostile experience of exile. First, Daniel's going to discipline himself to help him remember whose he is, where he's from, and where his allegiance truly rests. See, the king offers his own food and wine to these young, exilic leaders in training. He's trying to woo them, right? This would be the choicest meats and grains and wines and vegetables. And you know, lots of people have speculated over the years that Daniel refused this food from the king because it wasn't kosher, or maybe because it was sacrificed to idols. But those hypotheses have generally been debunked by most scholars today. Others have kind of thoughtlessly turned Daniel's diet of vegetables into some sort of Daniel fast where you only eat vegetables for a season. But this page doesn't exist to show us some new fast or another health food fat. Um, in fact, 100% of Ron Swanson's out there agree that we should say no to a vegetable-only diet. Seriously, though, the Hebrew word translated for vegetable here is the root word for seed or grain. Basically, it's any simple food that is made from plants of the earth like wheat products and also veggies. And what Daniel is doing is practicing his convictions by compromising with wisdom. See, if he resisted his education in the uh, mystic arts, or if he resisted changing his name, he probably just would have been disposed of, either killed or imprisoned or sent to a labor camp. Instead, Daniel resolves to compromise by remaining loyal to God and doing a good job in the king's court. Only through compromise is he ever going to enter a position where he interprets the visions God gives the king in chapter 2. You're just going to have to wait for that for next week. Eating leftovers from the king's table was a way of pledging loyalty to the state. That food would have been delicious. It would have been tempting to just go along with the whole assimilation process and just become Babylonian. But Daniel disciplines his appetite and abstains from food that he knows would lure him into the decadent lifestyle of Babylon. So instead, his simplicity and his austerity made him reliant on God. It was a form of micro-resistance that reminded him that he was loyal to Yahweh, not Nebuchadnezzar, and not to his own stomach, and not to a political superpower. Now remember I said there were two agents at work. Daniel comes up with the plan to eat what God provided. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go along with the plan. But it is God who changed the heart of the head servant so that he would give favor and compassion to Daniel and his friends so that they could change their diets. 
If the king had noticed that Daniel and his friends were getting scrawny, it would be the servant's head on the gallows, not Daniel's. See, in our culture, we have so many rights and luxuries. And I wonder, are we in danger of giving our loyalty to our culture and our comforts instead of giving it to Jesus? Where might it be helpful to say no to something good once in a while so that we can rely on Jesus as our source of life and strength and happiness? What holy convictions do we have that are worth sacrificing for? That question leads me to my second point. Where did Daniel's convictions even come from? After all, he was just a youth. How did he have such a foundation of loyalty and faith in Yahweh at that age? Well, of all ancient peoples, the Jews were known for how they passed on their faith, starting with the earliest ages. So from festivals to daily prayers at home, their whole culture and lifestyle was set up to teach and to transmit the ways of God to future generations. And that's where spiritual formation is so vital. I am so thankful for our kids' ministry led by Jen Milston and our youth ministry led by Christy Wilson. Our kids are getting a fantastic foundation of scripture and worship and practice in following Jesus. In fact, just today, Christy planned a a kickoff for Y Street, which is a two-year discipleship journey where our kids, 8th, 9th, and 10th graders this year, will be learning the foundations of our faith in a questions-based context. They're paired with a mentor from our congregation to walk with them in support throughout those two years. It's fantastic. Now notice that after God, the heroes of this story in Daniel chapter 1 are youths, all four of them. They're teenagers who are obedient to God. And I just want to say to all the kids out there, this is your time. Don't be fooled into thinking that real life doesn't begin until some arbitrary age, 18 or whatever it is. God can work in and through you right now to alter the course of empires. That's amazing. And then for those of us that are a little further down the road than youth, what I've learned over the years, and this is true of anything you want to flourish in, is never stop growing. Never stop learning because there is no neutral. There's only growth or slipping backwards. Christian community studying scripture, prayer, serving others. How are you growing these days? It's an important question to ask yourself, maybe after the sermon or service is over. If you want to grow in community and learn to flourish in exile, let me encourage you to join me starting this Wednesday as we begin Regent Reframe, an online 10-week video-based experience where we're going to learn how to live out our biblical faith in the context of 21st century world of work or home, arts and culture, and all of that stuff. I want you to join me and you can sign up for that um, by contacting info at letteredstreetcc.com. You can just say, I want to do Regent Reframe. We need a foundation and we need to keep growing if we're going to flourish in exile. We need to be rooted in Christ led by the Spirit, and grounded in Scripture if we're going to know where to stand in our holy convictions and the wisdom to compromise for the sake of working in our context so it can be a holy service as well. If you think about your context, student, retired, in the workforce, or between gigs right now, 
what are your Christian convictions? How might you be a blessing to Jesus and to those around you by engaging in culture while holding on to your convictions? We're going to need God's help with that, and we're going to need each other walking in community. Let's go to God in prayer. Thank you so much, Living God, for this passage, for your intervention in Daniel's life and in the life of world history, really. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for your servants, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, for their faithfulness, for taking a risk to hold fast to their convictions and yet have the wisdom to compromise so they can be of use in the court of the world. Lord, I pray for that sort of conviction in our hearts. Help us to keep first things first and to know how to wisely and obediently compromise where it serves you and the greater good of of our community. Lord, I pray for an outpouring of creativity and vision, for boldness and courage, and great joy. Lord, help us to flourish. Thank you that you invite us to flourish, even in the midst of exile. In Jesus' name, amen.